I told Jim I see that the word got out about who was leading tonight, uh, but that's okay, because those of us who are supposed to be here are here. Um, we're in uh, Leviticus chapter 26. We have tonight and one more night in Leviticus. Um, who'd have thought we'd go all the way through Leviticus? And it's been a good study. God is an infinitely holy God, and we're not. But he commands his people to be holy. So what are we to do? That's what we've been discussing all through Leviticus God graciously provides a way for sinful, corrupt people to live in his holy presence. That's the thrust of the whole book of Leviticus. I thought maybe before we got into chapter 26, we would get a little historical context for where we are. Um, we're still at the, the base of Mount Sinai. The people have been rescued from Egypt. Moses has been up on the mountain getting the commandments. Uh, in Exodus, the, the tabernacle is built. The uh, priesthood is established. And now we've got this tabernacle and we've got priests. What are we supposed to do with these things? So that's where Leviticus comes in. God is telling his people how to use the tools that he's given them to worship him. We have 40 plus generations of people who have lived in captivity in Egypt where there are thousands of gods, gods for everything. And the only thing they have to point them to the true God is the history that maybe has passed down about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their God. There were 70 people who went into Egypt who trusted the true God. And now there are a couple of million people who have come out and have spent their entire lives in a polytheistic nation worshiping or learning to worship all kinds of gods. And had they not, had God not taken them on a side trip to Mount Sinai, a couple of weeks they would have been in Canaan if they'd made a straight shot. And they would have been right smack in the middle of another culture that had thousands of gods. So God, through Leviticus, is teaching them who he is and what he expects of them, that he is the one true God. And he is their God. He has chosen them. He has incubated the 70 people in Egypt into a nation, a huge nation. So now he is teaching them that 
he is holy. He anticipates that they will be holy. Or he commands that they'll be holy. I'll take back the anticipation part because he knows they're not going to be. That's what this is all about, all these laws. But he is teaching them that he is the one God. And he's teaching them how to live before him. Mark Dever, uh, talking about Leviticus, says there are two main points. First, we see that God's people are distinct so that they live holy lives. Second, we see that God's people are sinful so they should offer sacrifices. So what he's saying is God's people are distinct or set apart. They are unique as God's people. So they should live holy lives. The problem is they're sinful. So they have to offer sacrifices. Now in the Old Testament with the Hebrews, there was animal sacrifices, blood sacrifices. We, as Christians, offer different sacrifices. Sacrifices of praise and worship, service. Now, Leviticus occurs about a month after the tabernacle is finished. And it's really a continuation of Exodus. And what, what this is, it's a conversation that God is holding with Moses from the tabernacle. God has entered the tabernacle. Moses can't go in yet because the glory of God is still in the tabernacle. So he is giving Moses these instructions from the inside of the tabernacle. Moses is standing out. And the major point of all this is that, that we, as God's people, are not free to worship in just any way that we want to. God demands reverence and a healthy fear for who he is. Now, in the New Testament church, he, he doesn't dictate every ritual that, that we're supposed to do like he did with the Hebrews. But... He expects the same level of reverence that he expected at Mount Sinai. So I can't just waltz into his presence and treat him like he's my best bud. Um, Nadab and Abihu would testify to that. So... He's given the law all through Leviticus, and now chapter 26, it kind of takes a turn. And he's telling them what's going to happen if they obey his law and what's going to happen if they don't. So it's called the blessings and the curses. Um, God is serious about his commands and what he expects of his people. And if I'm walking in a different direction from what God has commanded me to walk, guess what? I lose. I can't win against God. Okay, as we enter into this chapter, join with me just a minute in prayer.
Father, we come tonight proclaiming that you are God. And we come asking you to give us some comprehension of what that means because our feeble human brains just don't have uh, a place for you. We uh, can dream up the grandest images that we can imagine and they're infinitely short of who you truly are and what you truly can do and have done. Father, I pray that as we continue in this study of Leviticus that, that you would control my mind, that you would control my mouth, that you would let nothing but your word come forth. And I just pray that your Holy Spirit would apply that word to us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, the word of the Lord in Leviticus chapter 26. You shall not make for yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a figured stone in your land and bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. What does that sound like? Where, where, does that, where do you think that came from? The first four commandments. Who God is and how we're to relate to him. Now, this, this chapter is actually a covenant. You know, God is a covenantal God. He made covenants with Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, David, Noah, and all those covenants were unconditional. He said, I will do this. And he didn't, didn't expect them to have to do anything. This covenant that he's making with Israel through this chapter is a conditional covenant. In other words, he says, if you do this, then I will do that. If you don't do this, then I will do this. And that's, that's the run of, of almost the whole chapter. If is a huge word in chapters 26 and 27 because it appears 32 times in those two chapters. And the big three ifs in chapter 26 are in verse 3. If you walk in my statutes. And verse 14, but if you do not obey me. And then verse 40, if they confess their iniquity. So what I'd like to do first is just make a run through this and see what his covenant is and how, what he expects of his people. Beginning in verse 3, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then I shall give you rains in your season so that the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. 
Indeed, your threshing will last for you until grape gathering, and grape gathering will last until sowing time. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. So he's promising them, if you obey my commandments, you won't get hungry. I'm going to make your crops successful. Verse 6. I shall also grant peace in the land so that you may lie down with no one making you tremble. I shall also eliminate harmless beasts from the land and no sword shall pass through your land. But you will chase your enemies and they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will chase a hundred and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand. And your enemies will fall before you by the sword. So I will turn toward you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will confirm my covenant with you. So he's promising, if you obey me, I'll keep you safe from um, your enemies, and I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And in that culture, that was very important because in an agricultural context, you needed a lot of kids to work the crops. Is that right, Rick? When, when, you have, when you're farming, you need a lot of kids, right? thought so. You will, uh, verse 10, you will eat the old supply and clear out the old because of the new. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul will not reject you. So he's promising to be with them, to be in their midst. And I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, so that you would not be their slaves. And I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. So this is the blessings. God says, if you do what I command, I will do these things. Verse 14. But if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes and if your soul abhors my abhors my ordinances so as not to carry out all my commandments and so break my covenant. And I've, I've got these divided into different levels of what God's going to do. So he's saying, if you break my covenant, level one, in turn I will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption, and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Also, you will sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies will eat it up. I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies, and those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee when no one is pursuing you. So that's level one. If they don't obey him, he's going to cause sickness, fever, fail crops, 
enemies that can strike them down. Level 2, verse 18. If also after these things you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times. That's the uh, completion or perfection, the ultimate level. I will punish you seven times. And I will, yeah. More for your sins. I will also break down your pride of power. I will also make your sky like iron, no rain, and your earth like bronze. Your strength will be spent uselessly, for your land will not yield its produce, and the trees of the land will not yield their fruit. No crops, no food, no rain, hard ground. Level three. If then you act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. I will let loose among you the beast of the field which will bereave you of your children and destroy your cattle and reduce your number so that your roads lie deserted. So level three is the things are just getting worse and worse. If the longer they disobey, the worse things get. Level four, verse 23. And if by these things you're not turned to me, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with hostility against you. And I, even I, will strike you seven times for your sins. I will also bring upon you a sword which will execute vengeance for the covenant. And when you gather together in your cities, I will send pestilence, that's a plague, among you so that you shall be delivered into enemy hands. When I break your staff of bread, ten women will bake your bread in one oven and they will bring back your bread in rationed amounts so that you will eat and not be satisfied. Only one oven required because there's, there's no food. There's nothing to bake. Ten women share one oven and then they bring it back and it's, it's rationed. Level five. Yet, if in spite of this you do not obey me but act with hostility against me, then I will act with wrathful hostility against you. And I, even I, will punish you seven times for your sins. Further, you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters you will eat. I then will destroy your high places. That's places where idols are worshipped, and cut down your incense altars, and heap your remains on the remains of your idols. For my soul shall abhor you. I will lay waste your cities as well, and will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your soothing aromas. I will make the land desolate so that your enemies who settle in it will be appalled over it. You, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. Can you imagine? Yeah, you can because it happened. 
God is being prophetic here. I mean, they're still in at Mount Sinai, and it sounds like they've already gone to Babylon. So he is telling them, if you're not holy, this is what's going to happen. If you don't obey me, this is what I'm going to do to you. Knowing all the while that when he gave them the law, they would not be able to keep it and that all these things would happen. In fact, after we know that after the exile, the ten tribes that were in the northern Israel never returned. They just stayed dis dispersed among the nations. Starting with verse 34, we, we get a, a kind of a clue of one of the things that is going to cause all that to happen. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths all the days of the desolation while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths all the days of its desolation. It will observe the rest which it did not observe on your Sabbaths while you were living on it. As for those of you who may be left, I will also bring weakness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. And the sound of a driven leaf will chase them. And even when no one is pursuing, they will flee as though the, from the sword, and they will fall. They will therefore stumble over each other as if running from the sword, although no one is pursuing, and you will have no strength to stand up before your enemies. But you will perish among the nations, and your enemy's land will consume you. So those of you who may be left will, not, will, will rot away because of your iniquity in the lands of your enemies, and also because of the iniquities of their forefathers. They will rot away with them. He, when he's talking about the uh, Sabbath for the land, you remember part of the law was that every seven years they were to skip a year on their crops and let the land have a Sabbath. And I, I think what he's implicitly saying here is he knows that's not going to happen. They're not going to trust him, which that was the whole deal with the Sabbath for the land is skip a year planning and just trust me. And they didn't. Um, so I think implicitly he's saying this is one reason that you're going to be exiled because you didn't obey the Sabbaths. Now, if you will, mark that or hold your finger there and let's, let's fast forward 40 years to Deuteronomy chapter 11. Remember now, this was God speaking to Moses. And in Deuteronomy chapter 11, beginning in verse 26, all of Deuteronomy, Moses is rehearsing the history of Israel since they left Egypt. And he's step by step telling them everywhere they messed up and uh, everything God did for them. And he's recounting the law 
He's given the whole story of everything since they were freed from Egypt. And now he's preparing them to enter the promised land. His audience now is not, not the same group that left Egypt. They've all died. Everybody he's talking to now is 40 years old or younger, except Joshua and Caleb. And he's preparing them to go into the promised land. They're camped near the Jordan River across from Jericho. And in verse 26, Moses says, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I am commanding you today, and the curse, if you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I am commanding you today by following other gods which you have not known, it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, that you shall place the blessing on Mount Gerizim, the blessing placed on Mount Gerizim, and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not across the Jordan, west of the way, toward the sunset, in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the oaks of Moray? If you are about, for you are about to cross the Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall possess it and live in it, and you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the judgments which I am setting before you today. So this is 40 years later in a whole different audience, and Moses is giving them instructions. Once you cross into the promised land, you're going to go to Mount uh, Gerizim, Mount Ebal. They happen to be next to each other, and in the valley is a place called Shechem, which is the first place that God appeared to Abraham in the promised land. And it's the first place that Abraham built an altar in the promised land. And what Moses is telling them to do is half of you are going to be at the foot of Mount Ebal, half of you are going to be at the foot of Mount Gerizim, and the priests are going to be in the middle, and they're going to shout out the law, and you're going to, uh, the cursings are going to Mount Ebal, the blessings are going to Mount Gerizim, and you're going to respond as, and this is going to be a, a rowdy thing going on. And he leaves no doubt that they are going to possess the land. Look at verse 31. For you are about to cross the Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall possess it and live in it. So he's, he's telling them about this ritual thing they're going to do between these two mountains in order to uh, establish this covenant which was given to him 40 years ago. In Deuteronomy, you don't have to turn to this, chapters 27 and 28 is Moses' final address to the people. Once again, they're given the blessings and the curses. 
with the instructions to carry out the ceremony at Shechem. And he's saying that they are to whitewash the stones and write the law on it. And I'm assuming that he means the Ten Commandments because all the law would be quite a, a big wall. Um, and then the purpose for that is so they can see it in black and white. This is what we're supposed to do. And they built the altar on Mount Ebal. And in fact, archaeologists have found an altar there that they think could conceivably be Joshua's altar. Maybe not. And then they are to confess, repent, worship, and then they could rejoice in the fact that their God was once again their personal God. We as believers today can rejoice in the fact that given that we cannot keep the law, given that we are not holy, we don't, we don't even have a desire naturally to keep the law or the ability. We rejoice in the fact that God chose of his own good reasons and simply by his will to enter the world as the only person who ever kept that law, thereby becoming the only perfect sacrifice that would qualify to be our sin offering. Now, after Moses' death, Joshua led the people across the Jordan. They conquered Jericho through the most unusual battle plan every, ever thought about. And then there was the debacle at Ai. And then they finally arrive at Shechem between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And if you just want to jot down a note, uh, you can read about that in Joshua 8, 30 through 35. And it, it just describes that they actually did exactly what Moses told them to do. In fact, it says in verse 35, there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. So that means Joshua read the whole thing, Leviticus, all the way through. And they stood and listened and had the ceremony. So what does any of this have to do with us? It's, 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 it's interesting to me. I don't know how interesting it's been to y'all. But Jesus said this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That's what it has to do with us. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. 
And when the flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation, and the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. So does obedience make a difference to us today? It can, disobedience can ruin our lives and will ruin our lives. Now, go back with me to Leviticus 26. Verse 40 is where we left off. This is the third big if. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness which they committed against me and also in their acting with hostility against me, I also was acting with hostility. Wait a minute. And also in acting with hostility against me. I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they then make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember also my covenant with Abraham as well and I will remember the land if 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 was a big thing for the Hebrews they were given the law and God said if you do this I'll do that but note in um, verses 44 and 45, even though they were being disciplined by the exile, or they would be disciplined by the exile, he would not allow them to be destroyed because of his covenant with Abraham. 45, yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, now remember, this is, they're still at Sinai. But he says, when they are in the land of their enemies, which tells you he's going to put them there, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. So he never ceased to be the God of Israel. But I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and ordinances and laws which the Lord established between himself and the sons of Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. Leviticus 11.45 says, For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. You realize God delivered them from Egypt before he gave them the law, before they knew how they were supposed to act, before they were able to obey. 
What about us? But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the hinge of salvation history. Through these acts, he fulfilled all the goals of the offerings, the holy objects, the priesthood, the holy feasts, everything that God put in the law for Israel, Jesus fulfilled through his death and resurrection. But we are still expected to obey not because we are in jeopardy of losing our salvation, but because it creates a barrier in our relationship with God if we don't obey. And also, God still disciplines. The first night that we were in Leviticus, January 6th, Jordan made a statement that I, has stuck with me ever since. He said, Every blessing I receive is a curse to Jesus. And I've, I've had this verse in 2 Corinthians just really wearing me out for the last few months. It's chapter 5, verse 21. You don't have to turn because you know it. But the, the truth of it just jumped out at me a few weeks ago. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Not just to die for sin. He became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amazing. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. This is what Paul calls the law of love. That's our law, the law of love. Mark Dever says God's people should be marked not only by the holiness of don't, but also by the holiness of do. So our holiness is not based on don't do this, don't do that. It's based on do for others, do for the least of these, do for one another, love one another. Now, we pointed out that the, this covenant in, in chapter 26 is a conditional covenant of blessing, and it was given only to Israel. It does not apply to the New Testament church. Um, sometimes 
God may reward my obedience with health and wealth. Sometimes if I obey, he may use my obedience to take me home. It's up to him. It's his choice. But I'm to obey one way or the other. With privilege comes responsibility. Amos 3, 2 says, You only have I known or chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. He's talking to Israel. But it's still the point that we are chosen and he expects a level of obedience from us up here, not down here, up here. Now this, you know, the Bible is, is big on mountains. A lot of things happen on mountains. So, do you realize that as believers that, that we're living between two mountains? We're living between Mount Calvary and Mount Olivet, the Mount of Olives where he's going to come back. And God has written his law for us, but not on stone. He's written it in a book, but he's also written it on our hearts. And we live under a new covenant. And he's blessed us in Jesus Christ. So as believers, we need never worry about something like Mount Ebal, where we have to shout the cursings because Christ already took our curse. All the way from Mount Sinai to Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, to Mount Calvary and beyond to Mount Olivet. God is serious, serious, serious about our reflecting his holiness. In fact, he's so serious that he literally took our sin became our sin and gave us his holiness. Thanks be to our loving Heavenly Father that we don't have to face Mount Ebal because he has provided for the curses by becoming the curse on behalf of those who he has justified by the blood of the final and perfect sacrifice. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word, your revelation of who you are to us. We thank you for the book of the law, which is a mirror that reflects to us that we are unable to be what you demand that we be, and it drives us to the one who can make us what you want us to be. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. Thank you for preserving your word, for making us part of your family, for taking the curse and giving us your righteousness. And I pray that you would 
take the word that we've heard and apply it in our hearts and use us greatly in your kingdom work. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, brother. Um, Your heart was probably stirred like mine as Leviticus 26. The whole book really is is, uh, so very dense, so much in it. And uh, uh, that was very helpful. So thank you. Excellent. Uh, I was thinking about uh, Leviticus 26 when he talks about, I will set my face against you and all those curses, what you said, thinking about Christ on the cross and him setting his face against him, treating him mm-hmm. as, uh, as he should have treated us. And uh, praise God that we have such a, uh, a Savior that Amen. we, in him, now have the happy countenance of, of our God in Christ. So uh, my heart was worshiping along. There doesn't have to be, but maybe, maybe one or two comments were about at our time. We'll tear down and put everything back, and they'll be dismissed. But any, any other thoughts related to Leviticus 26? Um, just as we, as we close, any, any other insights or things you saw, things you're thinking about? Um, just before we before we close you covered it all yes brother Chris Hall text that you quoted in Second Corinthians, uh, yeah, Second Corinthians, for he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, mm-hmm. and there, that's a really particular wording, and it means something more than, like, Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sins, like, he actually became our sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God, so that we might actually have the power to live practically holy lives, not just he became sin so that we might be positionally holy. He did that, yes, but the wording is very specific in the, the fact that he became sin. And sin was uh, punished and crushed uh, on the cross in the person of Christ so that we might have the power to live holy, righteous lives before God and before others. And so I think that's a excellent passage and point of, of what we're talking about tonight. Yeah, as Rick said, what a what a savior and the Bible is so it's just so much so much there about our history. It's the, it's the uh, photo album, uh, our history. And we get to look back and uh, uh, see that and have it point, as you said, to, uh, to Zion's Hill. Uh, 